0: Sports fans, the wait is over. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is now live in Maryland. And for a limited time, FanDuel is giving new customers in Maryland $200 in free bets when you use promo code MarylandFD at sign-up. It doesn't matter if you win or lose, just place your first $5 bet. Then you'll get $200 in free bets, guaranteed. With football season in full swing, the timing couldn't be better. Finally, you can bet on all your favorite NFL and college teams with everything from the money line to point spreads to player props. Just download the Fan. FanDuel sportsbook app with the promo code Maryland FD to get started. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get two hundred dollars in free bets guaranteed. Now that FanDuel is live in Maryland, make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Disclaimer: Twenty-one plus and present in Maryland. First online real money wager only. Ten dollar first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expires in fourteen days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call one eight hundred Gambler. We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast, but the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying, Thank you. Grab the perfect get up and go breakfast for you and your crew. Right now, two soft and fluffy, fully loaded sausage burritos are just three bucks on the one, two, three dollar menu. Price and participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with combo meal.
1: Bada ma papa.
0: Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we uh, we m- may not be alone. This is The Garden of Doom.
2: Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom, and we are joined this week by one of our ever-increasing number of returning guests, J.P. Bristow. He has a podcast. It is called, and I always get this a little bit wrong, but it's called the history of the people of the Russian Empire—is that correct? The Russian Empire
1: history podcast.
2: The Russian Empire history podcast. Okay, I am so sorry. I mean, I listen every week. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, uh, I'm, like I'm, I'm on the end of the ruse, and I'm hearing about Varangians, and that's that's you know, I, I love love Varangians. So subscribe to his podcast because it is fascinating, and listen to it. And it's you know, it, it, if if you're like me, and you're a little bit lazy, and you wanted to like start with the history of Byzantium, and then you see this 260 episodes, you may be like, "Heh, I'm curious, but well, I'm not that curious." But this podcast probably has what? What are you on? Like, you're in the 30s, right? Yeah, 32 episodes, that's about. Right. Yeah, so that, that's not so daunting, people. You can catch up from the start. You can start from the start there. Um, anyway, I asked JP. To, first of all, he's on a prior episode, which I properly named the history of the Russian Empire, um, so it's easy to find, and you'll will, you'll hear about the Scythians and and all sorts of exciting and fun things, and almost a companion piece, but not exactly, is the, the Persian version, the first episode with Darius Kamali, where you'll hear sort of their version of maybe the Iranic peoples who maybe took more of a southern route, but uh, they all sort of blend into one in certain crisscrossing and arrows back and forth types of ways anyway i want to talk about the huns and jp said he uh, had just did, done a deep delve into it and would be happy to do it um and so we agreed to do it finding the time is was a little bit difficult because we have a 15 hour time difference he's in christchurch new zealand i'm in um, baltimore maryland which is east coast united states for those who don't know um and somewhere along the way, Viktor Orban said, made a speech, he's the president of Hungary, made a, some sort of speech in a reference to he only wanted pure-blooded Hungarians. He wanted this country to be the most pure-blooded of all. And I think after this story, um, this podcast, you'll know why I laughed almost at the same time as I expressed horror. Um, because the Huns are, you know, it, it, it's not a pure people, if there is such a thing, I, I, I dispute the notion that there is such a thing, maybe somewhere there are small pockets, but it's it's sort of a ridiculous notion in and of itself, but this is not a show about eugenics or genetics or any of that, we just touch upon it. Anyway, enough of my soliloquy, this is going to be a diatribe, actually it's going to be mostly a monologue from JP, but JP Bristow, thank you so much for coming back on the show, welcome, how are you today? Oh great Jeff, thanks for having me on again. Oh, I appreciate we,
1: um, it. Yeah, as far as the Hungarians go, it's the Hun in Hungary doesn't actually come from the Huns. <laughs> What's it come from? Uh, the Hungary comes from Onogur, which was uh, a Turkic group who we were actually involved with the Huns, a part of the confederation, and then they were in with the Bulgars in old Bulgaria and well, roaming around the whole district, and they ended up neighbors of the Magyars when they were out to board, towards the Urals. That's where the name comes from the Oligar's bush. So, people think, you always think he comes from the Huns because the Huns were kind of around the same area, but
2: I, I sure did. Uh, obviously, um, <laughs> who was I mean, the most famous Hun is probably Attila the Hun, so which group did he come from?
1: Uh, Well, he was one of the Huns, but who were the Huns is another big question, which Mm -hmm. uh, has several schools of thought and nobody really knows for sure. So it goes back out to the eastern end of the steppe, where there's a big melting pot that seemed to like... We produce various groups every couple of hundred years, so around the Altai area, which kind of lies where Russia, Mongolia, and China intersect out there in the middle of northern Asia. And that's an area where the steppe, the far east part through China and that, and the more northerly part in Siberia. Uh, They all kind of meet in that area. Uh, So the northerly part is forest land rather than the steppe, Mm -hmm. a different kind of climatic zone which uh, encourages different kind of lifestyles. So we had all these groups mixed there and uh, we had at one point a group called the Xiongnu who came out. They kind of went more eastwards. And they had quite a long period of fighting with the Chinese, eventually forming their own dynasty in China. And they're generally regarded as having set the template for the uh, steppe empire. So kind of a mix between their own indigenous or the least and organisation system and some stuff that they took from China, but they created this model. Uh, so we try and put the model in short terms. It is there's a ruling clan, and they kind of have you know the, uh, the endorsement of heaven, which is obviously something which is similar to what the Chinese had, they had the Mandate of Heaven there. And you had the, the clan. we don't know who the Xiongnu exactly were either, but they definitely had this and it went on down through succeeding steppe empires. They had a very high level of organization. So you had the Khan, there was usually two rulers. Uh, one of whom was a kind of uh, ceremonial prestige ruler, and one was the military commander, and they kind of worked as a tandem. Below them, you had sub-kings of the four cardinal directions, so you had the north guy, south guy, east and west, which were usually named after colours, the, the blue king, In the east, and the white king in the west, and the black king in the north, and all the way down below them. So, under those sub kings, they'd have their their commanders who were in charge of 10,000 men. Below those, there'd be the people who were in charge of 1,000 men. Below them, the people in charge of 100 men. And it went all the way down to groups that were in charge of five or 10 men, and the entire confederation was organized like this and
2: steppe culture so it's it's almost roman in their organization of uh military or maybe the romans stole it from them i don't i don't know well
1: the thing is the romans organized their army like that but the steppe people organized their entire society
2: oh wow it's like when when you mentioned the heaven thing that's sort of like the original trinity isn't it that like the the king got, got their power from the heavens, and then the, the and then the king bestowed was a connection with the people or the land that, that was, you know, sort of like Excalibur in the movie, the king without a land, the land without a king, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, uh, these days, or like from our perspective now, we find this idea of like divine kingship or anything like pretty natural, um, but it was not actually widespread in Europe. So, we've got, obviously, in the you know, Judeo-Christian tradition, you've got it back in the Old Testament with uh, David and Solomon and you know, all these various anointings and being the cho- chosen person of God and all of that, and it came from there into the Roman Empire, but before that, uh, the king, the, the emperors of Rome, uh, when we get to like, Augustus, declared himself a god. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a representative of god yeah, right. he hadn't been appointed by god he was god you right. know? And, uh, so that kind of idea of the, you know, the divinely appointed king or the king that's a representative of god or having god's blessing um, wasn't really present it, you know, that's something that's more was in the step it was in china you know, i think in. The, Japan as well, which may have drawn it from the same source, so it was, a, it was a bit different at the time to what was around them. And Because it's a steppe society, so it's already pastoralist, uh, everybody's mounted, everybody's potentially a warrior, and uh, this was how you think. I mean, we we think now that that area is kind of sparsely populated compared to the sedentary civilizations around it. It it would have been smaller than China, of course, which was the biggest population a long time back. But the steppe was actually a fairly comparable population up until probably the Black Death, which really cleared out a lot of people. And so if we say the Romans, the Romans might have Population, Eastern Roman Empire, something like eight million, and they put out an army of fifty, seventy thousand. Whereas the some step, organized some step society might have a population of one million and put out an
2: army of two hundred thousand. Yeah, Completely militarized society. So this was
1: you know, part of how they were very competitive, and the generally very. People tend to, you know, a lot of, you go back a lot of the classical stories and uh, they're all horrified by these people appearing from out of nowhere to attack them and they dismissed them as you know, savages and monsters and everything. But, and they didn't have cities and literature and everything. So uh, they tend to get a bit underestimated, but they were extremely, extremely well organized and they had a uh, separate like military and civil administrations. You know tax collecting organizations. They had uh, foreign relations services. It was a, a very highly organized society. And this was developed by the Shongnu, And basically alongside that, they all kind of practiced uh, succession in the clan rather than being father to son uh, or whatever. So this always created competing forces and always tended to destabilize. So mostly what you found is that they after a certain period there'd be a big battle for succession and one would collapse, and so the Xiongnu would collapse, and then the Huns appear, and then the Huns collapse, and after the Huns the Turks come. The Turks split up into various groups and then after the Turks, the Mongols appear, uh, and the Mongols, of course, break up into several little empires between the, the grandsons of Genghis Khan. And you know they, they refine stuff and add stuff over here, but basically uh, they all follow the same basic template of organisation and the divinely approved clan leader, and so. The Xiongnu, they were around for, I think, about four centuries before they fell apart. And they come back again later, but they fell apart for a while. And then
2: the Huns are the next people to take over the step. Around what uh, years are we talking about?
1: The Huns are kind of like from about 350-ish. There there are kind of references to people that might have been them, and there's further controversy about who gets included. We basically have four groups. There's a group that's out there still competing with China. Um, There's a group that's in India. There's a group that's in Persia. And there's Attila's group that's entering Eastern Europe, and um, you know, history kind of goes in cycles of historians uh, calling each other wrong, so they were treated as being all part of the same thing for a while, then the pendulum swung away to say they're all unrelated, uh, they're all just claiming the name Hun because it's a prestige thing. And, at the moment, it seems to be back to treating them as all being part of the same thing. But there's no kind of like, you know, Hun ethnic group as such. Like. You know, with, you know, with the Scythians, you know, they were all kind of an Iranic people, the Huns are different. So we go back to that bit in Altai. So in Altai, we've got, yeah you know, the East European groups coming from the far east of Asia which were kind of like you know, people, early Proto-Mongolians, people with that Eastern Asian appearance. You know. um, from Siberia, we have Tungusik and Yenisean peoples, you know, like the ancestors of the indigenous peoples we have in Siberia today. Um, some people also say that there were people related to the North American Indians came back across the Bering Strait mm-hmm. and returned to Siberia. There and back again. Uh, yeah, and uh, they were part of the elite that formed the Huns. Uh, don't think that's a theory that has...
0: Sports fans, the wait is over. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is now live in Maryland. And for a limited time, FanDuel is giving new customers in Maryland $200 in free bets when you use promo code MarylandFD at sign up. It doesn't matter if you win or lose, just place your first $5 bet. Then you'll get $200 in free bets guaranteed. With football season in full swing, the timing couldn't be better. Finally, you can bet on all your favorite NFL and college teams with everything from the money line to point spreads to player props. Just download the the FanDuel Sportsbook app with the promo code MarylandFD to get started. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get $200 in free bets guaranteed now that FanDuel is live in Maryland. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Maryland. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call one 800 gambling
1: a huge amount of support, but there are people out there arguing this. And then they're also incorporating Scythi- uh, you know, Iranic peoples that have been there since before the Scythians. They're still there for quite a while. Like um, When we get to the Turks, which is the like, 5th century, so following on from the Huns, also appearing in the Altai region, and their ruling clan is called the Ashina, and most historians say that that word, Ashina, is an uh, Iranic-derived word, so the Turks may have had an Iranic ruling plan. But no one's really clear about who the Huns were. <laughs> some people say they were Yenisean, some people say they were Iranic, some people say they were Turkic. Um, the only words from the Hunnic language that we have are, like, The names of people of a few tribes—they seem to be related to Turkic, Um, but Turkic
0: hadn't really emerged fully at that point, so they would be deriving
2: from the same things that Turkic derived from. Were there any? Unifying features, I mean, oftentimes you can find a unifying language, a unifying religious belief. Was there anything that sort of held the Huns together that, that dif- differentiated them from the other groups that seemed to be surrounding them and perhaps intermixing with them this this time?
1: It doesn't seem to have been in this case. Yeah, uh, the Scythians definitely had that, uh, and other groups, the Turks, had very much... Turkish language was their unifying factor there. But most, most historians seem to agree that the Huns were always a multi ethnic, multilingual confederation. And um, the, like Attila's the Western Hunnic Empire seems to have had four languages that everybody spoke, which was whatever Hunnic was, uh, Latin. Sarmatian, which is one of the Scythian languages, and uh, the Gothic. Um, and ethnicity is always like one of those things that's interesting as well. For okay, people have different ideas of what ethnicity means around the world. Even now, sometimes you know so when Europeans you know, sometimes hear Americans going, "Oh." I'm am a French, German, Norwegian, Italian. You know, it sounds a bit crazy, uh, but you know, historians see ethnicity not so much as your genetic heritage, but as a, a kind of practice. Mm-hmm. So, if you say if you say you're a Hun, I mean you, you ride a horse like a Hun, and you shoot a bow like a Hun, and you eat the same food as the Hun. Then it doesn't
2: matter if you're speaking Gulf or Turkic right. or Iranic. So if you joined the Huns and started living as a Hun, you could become a Hun. I mean, I don't want to over romanticize too much, but you know, it's sort of like you know the myth of America. If you come here and act like an American, you you're an American, um, even though you you know, like you say, you may have you know four grandparents from four different countries and three different continents, but you know you're the myth is you're an america not not the reality maybe in 200 years people look back and say that um but if if you were a hun whether you were you know from siberia or from china or from india or from uh, further uh, western in the steppes if you came in and sort of joined this confederation live by whoever the leaders was their sort of rules and within their if you if you drew your colors within their box that that you could be considered a Hun?
1: Yes. This is pretty characteristic of all the steppe empires. They have their law. And if you follow that law, you're pretty much free to do anything else. You can speak whatever language you want. You can follow whatever religion you want. Basically until the Mongols convert to Islam, which is a thousand years on from now, they, unlike other places which were already treating religion as their unifying kind of national idea, you could be anything. You know, they had the Tengri worshippers, which was the kind of traditional step thing, which probably started with the Xiongnu as well.
2: That sort of animistic paganism, right?
1: Animistic paganism with like a, a sky father and an earth mother and. Uh, You know, a fire goddess and you know, your usual kind of like natural phenomena that were influential in people's lives would be personified, but also Manichaeans, Christians Christianity was very widespread through the steppe.
2: We have to stop for a second on Manichaeans because Manichaeans that's from that like magician, right? That there was a maybe. Persian, and maybe it's something to do with the, the Christ story. What what's Manichaean?
1: Uh, so Mani was a Persian, yes, and he basically formed a syncretic religion that combined elements of Christianity and Zoroastrianism and Gnosticism, and created. This new religion, Manichaeism, which was extremely popular uh, in the West, it was popular maybe for 150 years or so. But it stayed on longer in Asia, reached as far as China. I think in China it survived like right down to like the 16th, 17th century. And um, but it was very widespread on the steppe, Um, like. St. Augustine, I think, was a Manichaean before he became a Christian. Uh, it, was, it was a very widespread thing. Um, it was, I think it was kind of a more of a dualist viewpoint than Christianity, which was, of course, Zoroastrianism was right. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was it. I mean, it, It's a big subject as well. We get distracted
2: for a long time. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Yeah, I. I, But anyway, it's on my my list of things to search. (laughs) The step were very, very open to
1: anything like that. Chinggis Khan's mother was a Nestorian Christian, and uh, the Kyrgyz people were almost entirely Christianized. I think at one point. So. Those kind of things weren't part of it. They had their law, and you had to follow the law.
2: Weren't the Khazars Jewish for a while? The, the
1: Khazars were Jewish, um, and there were some other Jewish groups around. But that's another thing that
2: gets argued about
1: as well, of like what it meant.
2: Right. I think most, most people said that they want to be neutral between the Christians and the Muslims and be like a safe harbor for trade, and basically they made themselves Switzerland for banking.
1: Yeah, and there's some other Jewish groups that were around there that left, like the whatever we called it at that time, Judea, I guess, um, earlier, and so they missed out on subsequent religious reforms. That were going on back in judea and they had their own form of judaism that didn't incorporate everything from there and uh, there's also some Turkishized jewish jewish groups um, so there's a few different things which i guess are kind of like you know you've got some sects that have branched away from christianity over all over the place and, the, and thing. there's a there's a group the name escapes me for the moment out in Iraq that were followers of John the Baptist that were still out there
2: now. There's only a few thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, for, I know who you are. Waiting you're talking. for the Messiah
1: to turn up, but, the, he's, been, but he's been prophesying is 2000. Is it Yaziki? No, the Yazidis are something different. Though. I think it's an end doctrine. Name's escaping me just at the moment. Okay. So, yeah,
2: that's a. There's all kinds of groups around, and uh, who is it? Were the Golden Horde Huns, or is that something entirely different?
1: Golden Horde no, no much later, so that was um, one of Fingers Khan's uh, grandsons was to with that, and they were Mongols and a Turkic group called the Kipchaks. Uh, so. the the Bulgar for example, are uh, descended from them and not related to the Huns really at all No, so, mm. now, between, between the Huns and the Mongols, you've got the, the Turks, who were the first empire to control the whole steppe from the east to the west. Uh, they broke up into a variety of groups. So uh, the, the Bulgars came out of them. And then the Khazars and uh, then later follow you know, a few centuries after that we get the Mongols
2: appear as the last big steppe empire. So the Huns uh in so when or what was like Attila's origin story or you know, that group that became came to some prominence and you know threatened the Roman Empire, which I, I guess is, was around three hundred or so, three fifty, I think you said. I think, yeah, they move into Europe around
1: 370, I think, if I remember rightly. And that's, that's into like the Pontic area. And then they have their wars with uh, Rome a couple of generations down from that. First, <laughs> they're consolidating themselves there. They basically uh, conquer the Goths who were down there. Uh, the
2: the they Pontic area is around like where Georgia is around the Black Sea. Is that is that about right?
1: It's that area north of the Black Sea. So Georgia's there on the mountainous side. and Moldova. The plain side. Belenor. The north is uh, that area. So that pontic is kind of the western end of the steppe. So it goes from like the Black Sea through to what is now Hungary. Okay. They consolidate there for a while. And um, then there's Attila and his brother Bleda, back again on that dual kingship thing. And yeah, so I think it's about about 440, I think they start. If I remember rightly. Oh, I was trying to lose lose the dates. Yeah, it, I think around the 430s, four forties, four fifties is when they had their main fights with them, the Roman Empire. So they have several like uh, run-ins with Eastern Rome first, obviously, because that's where they were. So, and they're basically doing the usual steps thing of trying to get the people to pay them tribute and
2: let them trade. So the Roman Empire that they're fighting with is mostly the the Byzantium, the Constantinople Romans, less than Rome, Rome, because I mean I think Rome and Italy had sort of fallen and been reduced by 400.
1: This is—they're um, kind of not fallen actually. They're kind of on the up at the moment, and this is one of the interesting points that's debated around the Huns, as uh, you know, what was their role in the fall of the Western Roman Empire? But you know, this, when they come out, they are still both there, and the Roman economy is doing well at this time, and they appear to be doing well militarily. But the Huns pretty much decimate the Eastern Roman Empire. They depopulate Thrace and the Balkans. They come right up to Constantinople. and They they force Rome to pay out an enormous tribute. It's several times as, as much as they paid to settle their war with Persia, So that's just indicative of the kind of threat they are. Um, After the final settlement with them, uh, it was several decades, I think about 30 years before Eastern Rome managed to put another full army in the field again. The emperor then was Theodosius, who most famously built the walls of Constantinople. And it was the Huns that really inspired him to do that, you know, which, of course, made Constantinople pretty much impregnable for the next thousand years. And then after that, they moved on to the West. And there's a whole range of like confused stories about what's going on here. So there's a, an, there's a story that theodosius' sister was supposed to be married to somebody each She didn't want to marry. And She allegedly sent a letter to Attila with a ring asking him for his assistance in avoiding this marriage, which he took as an offer of marriage, and then spent several years demanding the Romans turn her over to marry him, along with half of the Roman Empire as his dowry, which of course didn't happen. But around the same time, we should mention as this, those other groups of Huns that are talked about that may have been Huns and may not have been Huns, or these people that were calling them Huns, they also defeated the Chinese, they defeated the Guptas in India, and they defeated the Persians. So basically, the the four great empires that are surrounding the steppe were all basically brought to... uh, Either
2: defeated completely and replaced, or severely curtailed. Right, so Rome was not, you know, this uh, unstoppable force. Then it was just one more contender.
1: Rome was just another contender. Rome had been fighting you know, Persia for three, four hundred years at this point, but without being able to defeat. They were two evenly matched empires, and the Huns beat both of them and had uh, the emperor's envoy to uh, Attila Priscus, uh, he wrote a description of how he went to attend negotiations and uh, Attila said, oh, you know, maybe we'll just conquer the whole of the Roman Empire. And he seems, to, Priscus seems to have taken it completely seriously as something that they might have been able to do if they wanted to do it. But Right. In in the end, it didn't happen because Attila died. Uh, But after after the East, they went West, and um, they had a big famous battle there, the Battle of the Catalonian Fields, which is one of those things you can find, I think, uh, about a million different interpretations of it. People who said it meant nothing to people who said it completely determined the entire history of Europe ever after. Uh, In this battle, the Hun Confederation fought the Western Roman army with their barbarian allies. uh, The main account that we have of this is written by a guy called Jordanus, who was
0: Sports fans, the wait is over. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is now live in Maryland. And for a limited time, FanDuel is giving new customers in Maryland $200 in free bets when you use promo code MarylandFD at signup. It doesn't matter if you win or lose, just place your first $5 bet. Then you'll get $200 in free bets guaranteed. With football season in full swing, the timing couldn't be better. Finally, you can bet on all your favorite NFL and college teams with everything from the money line to point spreads to player props. Just download the the FanDuel Sportsbook app with the promo code MarylandFD to get started. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get $200 in free bets guaranteed now that FanDuel is live in Maryland. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Maryland. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLING.
2: see if it's going again. Yeah, we had a little zoom disconnection there, folks. But yeah, it it looks pretty seamless on my side. So, yeah, uh, you were at the Battle of Catalonia, I believe.
1: The Battle of Catalonian Fields, yes. So, we have uh, an
2: account of the battle by this guy called Jordanus,
1: who was writing to promote and legitimize the Goths. So, for him, the, the Goths are the Roman's great allies here, and he writes this rather confused account of the battle, uh, which he says the Romans and Goths won. Uh, But in the course of winning, uh, the Goths leaders are killed, the Romans flee in terror, they're holed up in their camp, desperately shooting arrows as the Hun army surrounds them, and uh, they all think they're going to die, but then a couple of days later, the Huns just pack up and go home. And so since the Huns have gone home, they declare themselves the victors, right. even though their army's been wiped out and their leaders are dead. <laughs> and the, this often gets taken at face value that Romans beat the Huns, but the Huns were actually on their way home from a previous campaign when the Romans caught them, so they just carried on going home after they had... You know, to all accounts, defeated the Romans since the Huns remained in charge of the field at the end of the battle and the Romans were unable to do anything about it.
2: Yeah, an entirely different mindset on warfare, I guess.
1: Yeah, they, you know, they had their campaigning season. They went out in the summer, they went home in the winter, and uh, they just weren't too bothered about it. And there's a lot of discussion around this. so. Of course, why the Western Roman Empire fell is one of the great questions of history that that there are never ending books about. And there are different viewpoints on this. Um, We have like the kind of classical viewpoint, the classical and as a Greco Roman focused thing, which all the reasons in this are internal to the Roman Empire.
2: Right, and, uh, they got fat and lazy, yeah. and they they yeah, relied so they're, on they're, mercenaries. They're the, they're, yeah. they're the greatest empire, so nothing could possibly have caused it right. other than themselves.
1: You know? Who else was around? That could have defeated them. And against this, you know, we've got the arms, but. People analyse what's going on in Rome, and they had the third century crisis, and now in the fourth century they're actually doing very well. Population was growing, economy was booming, and they seemed to be well organised again. And then the Huns turn up and defeated them. And the army that the Huns destroyed at the Battle of the Catalonian Fields was the last Roman army that the Western Empire ever fielded. They Hmm. never managed to put one together again. After that, they only had the federati that they recruited from tribes as paid mercenaries, and the Western Roman Empire never defeated a barbarian army again.
2: Where is Catalonia? I think
1: it's somewhere kind of like Eastern Gaul.
2: Okay. So it was sort of like F- France, Switzerland, Germany kind of? Yeah,
1: France just an area. Um, the reason why the Huns were there is often given that they were having their say in a succession battle that was going on in Gaul at the time. And they'd been fighting down by Orléans and were going back towards uh, Hungary. Where Hungary is now, Pannonia, as it was then, which was where uh, Attila had his base. So there are more kind of like Eurasian focused historians who give more attention to the steppe. So the, this was the actual trigger to the eventual fall of the West. There's no, there's no one reason, but this was the one. After this point, uh, sorry, said the Eastern European Empire couldn't field an army for another thirty years. Western Roman Empire never fielded an army again. They never defeated any barbarians. The Huns destroyed their military capacity completely, and so the collapse was inevitable after that point. But
2: uh, you know, classists don't like this view. So, yeah. Mm.
1: Oh, well yeah and the, and the roman writings are very kind uh, of even in terms of you know, how the sedentary civilizations are generally hostile to these nomadic empires the roman writings are extremely hostile towards the huns they just they derive them completely they say just ridiculous things like they say that they don't have metal that they only use bone arrow tips and they don't know how to cook food they they warm meat by putting it under their thigh while they're riding a horse <laughs> and they're, they're ugly and filthy they're, just, they're completely derisive about them which of course leaves open the question of well if, they, if they're so primitive how did they completely defeat you every
2: battle that you came to. Right. It becomes, to, it becomes the, <laughs> the third grader excuse. I wasn't trying my hardest. If I was trying my hardest, yeah, I could have won. So after this battle, so, you know, we, we know what happens with Rome. And then so the Huns, where do they, I mean, I, I guess they disperse to wherever they go. Where I mean, where, where is it that they go as far as their hub would be concerned?
1: They go back to Pannonia, which is basically Hungary. It's that. Furthest, furthest tip of the step, which was, uh, well, if every every step people that kept going west ended up in Padonia. and so the Huns had their base there.
2: So even they though it's in Hungary, that's not why we call it Hungary, which is exactly, very confusing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the next people that come and give it that name of Hungary. But uh, they also attack Italy. They get more tribute there. But then, and there is talk then, like with Priscus, uh, that this whole thing with the the empress, the Emperor's sister still going on. And um, you know, Tiller basically seems to be gearing up to conquer Rome. But he dies, you know, according to legend, in the course of uh, Join himself with a massive feast he takes himself up to a heart attack and uh, dies whatever but he's, got, he's
2: dead sorry folks we had uh the zoom just cut out uh for a second there so if there's a longer pause than usual that's what happened but he jp's back so okay uh please continue
1: Yes. Yeah, so the tiller is dead and what we have is uh, old steppe. Succession struggle, and essentially the Han Empire just falls apart. So they different groups split off. And they controlled the Bulgars, who are in you know, a kind of confederation of Turkic groups, including these Onogurs. Uh, the Goths split off, other Germanic groups, the Avars, split away. The Avars form a new kind of smaller empire based on Pannonia. Uh, And then the Turks are starting to come through
2: from this step as well. So if I'm understanding this correctly, and if you are correct, if Attila just sort of dropped his demands for maybe a wife, or maybe he wanted the wife, just not half the empire, he probably could have forged some sort of deal with that and... You know, we'd be talking about Attila as one of the uh, top generals of the Roman Empire or a governor or or, so, or something like that, and there might still be a, a Roman Empire.
1: There might still be, um, but this, again, it goes back to kind of the steps thing, that they didn't want to conquer these empires. Attila wouldn't have actually wanted to rule Rome. Right. Because you know, these agricultural based cities were no good to them. What they wanted was that Rome would acknowledge that they were in charge and would pay them regular amounts of gold and open up all of their markets to trading because, of course, we're out on the step again. So at this point, the Huns are controlling the Silk Road trade to China and India.
2: So the mafia? They, 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 they. The they don't really want to run the business, but they're in control of it as long as long as they get their tax and they're treated with respect. It's, it's, it's fine. It's all good. Yeah, it's a different... It's not a land based empire. It's a. It's, it's a tribute. A commercial. It's a military commercial empire. Okay, so they, they, they would have retreated to somewhere or whatever, but not, but retreat in the. Pedestrian sense, not in the military sense of retreat. They just they just, they just go back home. They just go back to their, their, whatever their home lands are because they're nomadic and not sedentary. Yeah,
1: if, if Attila had not died, if he'd hang around for another 10 years or so, they might have just gone and sacked Constantinople. Right. And maybe maybe the Eastern Roman Empire would not have survived either because he died that didn't happen the romans were able to you know, recover so, um, and justinian everybody comes along and restores the empire uh, so you yeah, the Huns are gone we've got the Avars, you've got the bulgarians form old great bulgaria on the pontus and uh, that's it but there's several other things that come out of this um, which I think there's a historian I think he's at Melbourne University uh, Kim Kim who uh, particularly studies the Huns and, uh, besides destroying the Western Roman Empire he picks out several other things that were key key Hun influences on history and so the first thing is uh, German Germanic statehood, say. So before the Huns came, the Germans you know, across Northern Europe, they were the tribal societies. They didn't have kings. They used to just, you know, vote for a war leader if they had their uh, some campaign, but they were basically completely decentralized. They had no government. And after the Huns, all the Germanic peoples have Centralized societies with a king who claims some kind of divine support. You know, they are calling themselves the grandson of Woden or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we look at, say, the Merovingians and the Franks, the first Merovingian kings all had step burials, which would not. We talked about the step burials last time. They're all buried in corgons, They're all buried surrounded by horses. They they had uh, they were famously one of the identifying features was long hair. Which the Romans tend to wear their hair short. step peoples wore their hair long. So we've got strong strong like step influence on those first uh, Merovingian kings among the Franks in France and in other. Germanic areas, so he sees that, the the initiation of Germanic statehood, which of course also plays a role in the fall of the Western Roman Empire, because they have a greater level of organisation. That's one of the things that comes from the Huns. And also the division of the world into West and East, he sees it coming from this, because those Germanic uh, kingdoms that started to appear, they refused to recognise Byzantium as the Roman Empire. Well, I mean, we're talking and saying Eastern Rome Western Rome, but that's not the Roman usage. They saw it as just the Empire. They had two right. capitals it was all together. The Byzantines called themselves Romans forever, and there's a whole lot of centuries of correspondence between these peoples. You know, the Byzantines keep saying that, you know, I am the emperor of Rome. Uh, you know, Charlemagne, all these people say, no, you're not. No, <laughs> I, I'm the emperor of Rome. You're just Greeks in the East. Right. And they insisted on calling them Greeks, which is to drive the Byzantines crazy. <laughs> and, uh, so, the Hunjan uh, king, we would say that this was the first. East-West split. Before that, it was just it all ran from ran from China to Spain. It was all just one thing. The Huns wouldn't have seen Europe as being something different and divided to Asia. It was all part of a continuum. And of course, when you're looking back from a a European or American society. We tend to see Greek and Rome as European, but they were also in the Middle Eastern continuum at time. North yeah. Africa was part of Rome. When Alexander the Great wanted an empire, he went to India, he didn't go to Portugal. Um, yeah. There was always a.
2: Yeah, Pontic was, was Greek, Anatolia was Greek, Capitolia. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: So. There was not that Asian-European divide, and some people, scholars argue that this divide started to appear as a result of the the effects
2: of the Hunnic Hunnic Empire in Europe. Well, you never know what's a cause and effect of anything. There's usually many, many events that that lead to it, but but this sounds like it it was an accelerant, if nothing else. So, okay, so we, we, we cured one misnomer, which uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person in the world that, that thought that Hungary was named after the Huns and, and the Till of the Hun and some sort of deal with the Romans, like sort of how Romania was, allowed, was, was given to a certain, uh, you know, I'll just say barbarians. Barbarians is a Greek word that basically just means the other um, or others or not Greek. Um, I guess it's been adopted and gets a sort of a bad rap, you know, like as you were saying that, you know, as the Germans were thinking that, you know, they didn't cook their meat and they were ugly and that kind of thing. Um, So we found out that Jeff was wrong. Not a big surprise. The show is not afraid to find out that its host is wrong because this the entire purpose of the show is for me to learn along the way and and hopefully others uh, do too. So. Hungary, not named after Attila the Hun, although the Huns often considered part of this land uh, as Hungaria or Pannonia uh, and and were found there. So h- how did Hungary get its name then?
1: So I've mentioned the Bulgars a few times. And so you had a Bulgur confederation, which was one of the groups that emerged here. They were uh, more Turkic, And they had settled tribes there, and one of the main tribes was the (laughs) Onagors. And so the Onagors were around there.
0: Sports fans, the wait is over. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is now live in Maryland. And for a limited time, FanDuel is giving new customers in Maryland $200 in free bets when you use promo code MarylandFD at signup. It doesn't matter if you win or lose, just place your first $5 bet. Then you'll get $200 in free bets guaranteed. With football season in full swing, the timing couldn't be better. Finally, you can bet on all your favorite NFL and college teams with everything from the money line to point spreads to player props. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app with the promo code MarylandFD to get started. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get $200 in free bets guaranteed now that FanDuel is live in Maryland. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Maryland. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLING.
1: Well, from the Huns through to the Khazars, driving them out, it was about 300 years, they were at various times also uh, barbarian allies of Byzantium. And um, so I already mentioned earlier on that the Hungarians were called Turks by everyone around them for a few hundred years. Right. And uh, they had, although the Magyars are finno ugrian people, they had a strong Turkic influence from these various other nomadic groups that they were allied with at various times and had Turkicized culture to some degree.
2: What's Finno-Ugrarian people? I, mean, I assume there's something to do with Finland, is, is, is part of it, or at least the northern part?
1: The uh, Finns are other green people yeah um, so the Finnoogrians they are a group of people that emerged in the forest belt of Eurasia uh, on just kind of just over the eastern side of the Urals is most likely and they migrated westward so the Finns the Estonians the which is what the Hungarians call themselves uh, in Russia on that kind of western side of the Urals. There's several other peoples there, the Komi, the Miaks, These are all
2: Northern peoples, peoples. Are they Slavs? Kind of, no,
1: they not so different, different language group. Hmm. Uh, they're also kind of a mixed. Genetic heritage, if you go back to that in a period when they're on the eastern side. Um, There's several kind of theories about that. Some of them, even that there's people from way out in China. There's uh, the original northern uh, Northern Siberian indigenous peoples. Uh, On the middle Volga area, uh, when the Bulgars move up to there and form Volga Bulgaria, most of the peoples around them are these Finnaugurins, and so there's kind of a mix there of Turkic and Finnaugurin peoples in that area between kind of like the middle Volga and the Ural Mountains. And the Madhyas started there, somewhere around what's now Bashkortostan, which is kind of like neighbour of Tatarstan. Tatarstan's on the... Actual Volga, Bashkortostan to the east, running into the Ural Mountains. They were in that area, and as we have around the end of the Khazar we have more people, more Turkic groups coming west. They kind of push them down. They travel down towards the Pontic area. They stay there for a while, and then we have another group called the Pechenegs. Come and other Turkic groups, they push them further west and they move up round to Pannonia. Um, So, along the way, they're getting in with more Bulgarians with these Onagur groups. All the details aren't clear, but they move quite quickly. Uh, I think it's really, you know. Maybe like seventy years or something it took them to travel the whole way round.
2: Where's the word Hun come from? That though is that is it just the way we pronounce?
1: Yeah, this Hun Hun is so there was the Huns, the the ones that were in India were called the Huna, and that's a lot of people say that this just derives from the Xiongnu. It's just a phonetically adapted that, but. It's not entirely clear because we don't know what language the Huns spoke. So,
2: well, these whatever. Bulgars, these Bulgars, and the would you say the Ulegurs is uh, seem to be the dominant peoples in Pannonia. Like at at what point did they go from Pannonia to Hungary? Uh, the uh, the
1: Bulgars were not up as far as Pannonia. The uh, Avars, which was uh the Iranic groups, they were in Pannonia. The Bulgars were on the Pontic steppe, and then they moved to the Danube, where we have Bulgaria today, and another breakaway part moved up to the middle Volga and formed Volga Bulgaria. So the Magyars moved into Pannonia around, uh, mm. say, late 9th, I think late ninth, early 10th century, and so that Pannonia is basically the area we call Hungary now. And the borders don't exactly match. Pannonia was the name of the Roman province there, and that became Hungary.
2: Did the Soviets just name it Hungary just 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 for ease, or sort no, of randomly?
1: No, Hungary was actually an extremely strong and important kingdom throughout the Middle Ages. Um, we tend to think these days of places like Bulgaria and Hungary as these kind of small countries in the east, uh, but that's uh, not how they were then. The Hungary was a very, very strong country there. It was larger than the Hungary today.
2: There was an Austro-Hungarian Empire, wasn't there?
1: Austro-Hungarian Empire came later, yeah. so uh, ran up there. But for a long time, the Hung- Hungary was, you know, they were fighting the Ottomans, and they fought
2: so who, the Poles. So who and why named them Hungary or, and when?
1: don't exactly know who called them Hungarians first. Um, I guess it was their neighbors. They don't call themselves Hungarians at all. Um, they, call, they call themselves Magyars, and the name of Hungary escapes me, but it's Magyar with some Suffix there that means you know, Magyar land, mm-hmm. uh, that's, what, that's what they call it.
2: And it translates to Hungary in, in English,
1: basically. Yeah, yeah, it's like you know, Deutschland, Germany.
2: Gotcha. So, it, it, so it's a it's a coincidence then that that there was Attila the Huns, and those Huns came in. I mean, one of those. Weird coincidences, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's just the pronunciation. It, it seemed convenient, and we just put one word on top of another because uh, yeah, of the, the land.
1: Uh, the name Hungary certainly came a long time after the Huns. Okay.
2: So we, we sort of know where the Huns began. We sort of know where they ended. We sort of know where Hungary popped up ar- around. So it was, what did you say, around the 10th century is, is when it's it's sort of known as Hungary? Yeah, so like
1: I said, there was the Adarchaion kind of there. there. Um, they were had quite a rivalry with the Khazars. The Khazars wrote several times to Byzantium saying that you know, Byzantium shouldn't support these people, they were just runaway slaves. The Khazars were going to restore their power over them, but they didn't really manage to extend their power as far as that uh, they got it as far as Kiev, basically, and that was the westernmost extent of their power. The Avars were eventually taken out by the Franks, which was probably a bit before, maybe a hundred years or so before the Magyars came in. There were Slavs around there for a while. But, yeah, but it's still kind of a messy was, whole. A lot, lot of migrations going around, yeah, sometimes in circles.
2: So, 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 years, that, so, yeah. so sort of how every now and then scientists find this frog that they've never found before and they just give it a name. Hungary was just there. There were people in there they decided to call Hungary and say, this hungry Hungary. Everyone's there like, whatever, call us what you want. Yeah, that's <laughs> Well, that, that's fun. Um, so, I mean, it's sort of a country shrouded in... in uh, mystery and people shrouded sort of in mystery coming from a lot of different places, maybe with a a coincidental, uh, root name that, but the, but the roots are from different trees and, uh, we have a name. So the Huns a lot more complicated than, than we thought because there's different Huns, lots of Huns. Yeah, I think uh,
1: Hungarian history is generally pretty underrated. Uh, You know, most countries seem to have a podcast, Doing their history these days, but there isn't a Hungarian one. Somebody should do it because people don't really know.
2: Yeah, much well, about
1: it. well,
2: you would get at least one listener from me, and that sounds like maybe two from you. So, I mean, that that's a start. That's, yeah. that, that's not bad. All right, well, I I. I Feel like my ignorance is a little bit justified because it doesn't sound like anyone's really truly expert on the, neither the origins nor uh, the end. It, it's, uh, the, the middle is, you know, seems to follow a, a template, as you say, similar to the Mongols and the Turkics and the Iranics generally moving from east to west and sometimes south and sometimes north and sometimes here and back again. And I mean, I, I love the the Avars particularly because the the king's name is Alaric, and I have no idea how I know the name Alaric except I remember it as a child. So when I hear, you know, Alaric, king of the Vandals and the and the Avars, I, I get all excited. Um, or the Visigoths and some, something. He was like the king of two things and went into northern Africa. then went back into Spain, and um, yeah. you know, all, all sorts of fun stuff like that. Um, but i I think that Alaric was a bad guy in like a swords and sorcery book that I read like like for kids like like a fourth grader level like Lord of the Rings kind of thing um anyway, not particularly important at the moment um I thank you for trying to clear that up and uh given us your knowledge. How can people follow you where can they support you where can they find you
1: uh- they can follow find me on uh, Twitter Facebook Russian Empire history podcast uh, there's Russian Empire history com and the podcast is on all the platforms I think so
2: find it anywhere yeah I, I get it on Apple it it, it come comes it drops to me when you know all the time we just had uh, enter the ruse too or uh, uh, some you know part two anyway with the the ruse and I'm I'm sure if I listen long enough I'll I'll hear uh, uh, more about the Slavs and and other things and figure out what's the difference between Finno-Ugrarian and and the Slavs. See, here's my problem is that a lot of my knowledge came from reading an historical fiction book called Ruska mm-hmm. by Edward Rutherford, who I presume is British. Yeah. Um, great book introduced me to Finno-Ugrarian. But that was sort of it. Then it talked about the Alans, and that was sort of it. So it led me to believe that the Finneau Agrarians and the Alans were, you know, basically sort of like the, you know, the, this Aryan horde of, you know, by Aryan, I do mean it in the blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, you know, last hundred year perversion of the word rather than the original version of the word. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, turns out that that's probably not entirely true, but there is something to it there. There, there were, of course, some people with blonde hair and blue eyes, but that was not the definition of the people. So, so Edward Rutherford, I shake my fist at you and, but you're shaking, but he's shaking his fist back at me saying, it's fiction, dude. Do your own research. And he's right. So Actually,
1: in some of the Finno-Ogrian languages, because the finno ugrins were the people of the forest and the, the Aryans were the people of the steppe. They were border, border
2: rivals, and in some finno languages, Aryan means slave. Ah, oh, great. <laughs> and in some language, Slav means slave. I mean, so, uh, yeah, uh, the world's complicated. That I mean, that's that's the one thing I think we should all take from the world is complicated. There's basically nothing simple. And uh, I guess that's what makes it interesting, um, as long as we keep that in mind. So, all right. Thank you very much, folks. Definitely. Uh, subscribe to his podcast become a patron if you like i don't take patreon so if you were inclined to give me five bucks a month or whatever give it to him you know i'm not i'm not doing that not yet anyway uh and probably not ever um so is there anything that you want to leave us with
1: no just uh if you're interested in this kind of thing and i'm talking about in my podcast, as the byline is, it's the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. So we're not just talking about the Russians or even the Slavs. We're gonna be dealing with the indigenous peoples of Siberia, the finno-ugrians the Tatars, the Caucasian peoples, all of them. So
2: yeah, I can't wait for the Tatars. And I can't wait for the Caucasians who probably wouldn't fit the definition of Caucasian as we know it today. Uh, generally speaking. But I'm not even sure I'm right about that. So I'll listen and you guys should listen as well. So thank you again, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Give us a rating and a review and five stars and you'll hear from us next week in the Garden of Doom.
0: Sports fans, the wait is over. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is now live in Maryland. And for a limited time, FanDuel is giving new customers in Maryland $200 in free bets when you use promo code MarylandFD at sign-up. It doesn't matter if you win or lose, just place your first $5 bet. Then you'll get $200 in free bets, guaranteed. With football season in full swing, the timing couldn't be better. Finally, you can bet on all your favorite NFL and college teams with everything from the money line to point spreads to player props. Just download the Fan. FanDuel Sportsbook app with the promo code MarylandFD to get started. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get $200 in free bets guaranteed now that FanDuel is live in Maryland. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Maryland. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER.